This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Matt Darling, the Executive Director of Fontenelle Forest. There's peacefulness. There's a serenity that isn't obtained in other places. I shun technology in a lot of ways. (laughs) Um, To step away from that and that expectation, to step away from the ding of an email, from the never-ending flow of information and forcing other senses of your own to come to life is what drives me. Matt Darling is the executive director of Fontenelle Forest, one of the largest nature centers in the country. Fontenelle is made up of two properties and multiple ecosystems, 24 miles of trails, a high ropes course, and 2,100 acres of forest, prairie, and wetlands. Prior to this role at the forest, Darling was the executive vice president of the Omaha Community Foundation, a role in which he focused on an in-depth knowledge of all giving tools and the benefits of active philanthropy. Darling is heavily involved in organizations throughout Nebraska communities, including but not limited to the Hastings College Foundation, Nebraska Land Trust, Central High School Foundation, and he is a practicing Nebraska master naturalist. He is married to Elizabeth and has two sons, Max and Charlie. Matt Darling, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate being invited. Fontenelle Forest conjures all sorts of images. Uh, would you describe Fontenelle Forest as a venue and as an experience? Absolutely. The organization itself is made up of two properties, as you had mentioned. Um, the forest itself is um, in Bellevue, Nebraska, and about 1,550 acres and split between two uh, dominant ecosystems, about 750 acres of uplands, which is heavily wooded land, and about the same amount of acres in lowlands or wetlands. And so the experience at the forest is is incredibly unique. Uh, Before I go into the forest itself, I'd say we also have our sister property, Neil Woods, which is um, in far north Omaha, close to uh, Fort Calhoun, and uh, it's made up of about 550 acres. And that's roughly equally split also between wetlands and uplands. Uh, Neil Woods is an area that is um, really focused on the natural nature experience itself. Uh, There used to be a nature center at Neil Woods. We have taken that down. And the infrastructure is, uh, of course, the trails. Uh, a parking area and a uh, a restroom. Beyond that, the 550 acres at Neil is really there for uh, our members and guests to experience the purity of nature. The forest in Bellevue is a little bit different in that um, we have a wide variety of experiences. We have a very large nature center in Bellevue, uh, and that is the entrance off of Bellevue Boulevard North. Uh, at the Nature Center, you can access, uh, as you had mentioned, our High Ropes course, which is a partnership with Tree Rush Adventures, and they run that particular facility. It's made up of six acres, and individuals can get up in the trees and experience the canopy. So Tree Rush is a great partner in that, and they have uh, a really good system of, of working with people to have a two- or three-hour experience up in the trees. Beyond that, though, 
the forest and and the uh, the organization of the forest, we we look at the trails. We look at getting people out into nature, and so we have uh, about 17 miles of trails that the majority are in the uplands. We do have a, a, a fair amount though in the wetlands. We offer a wide variety of educational experiences from three years old to to 93. Uh, anything and everything in between, we really do try to serve all populations to to experience nature. And so that can be a variety of our young toddler program called Mud Pies, which is getting some hands dirty and getting some uh, experience in nature uh, through our adult programs and our moon uh, moonlit hikes and our after work hikes up to our seniors understanding nature, which is a senior based program at the forest. Uh, this next year, it'll be nine times throughout the year where seniors can access different parts of understanding the forest. Uh, that's typically uh, less mobile, meaning they're not out hiking for miles and miles, but within the nature center, learning about different aspects of the forest. A couple of ways that people really, really enjoy our property in Bellevue is through our Raptor Refuge, which is an elevated uh, off the forest floor uh, refuge area for non-releasable birds. Uh, so the birds have been injured in a variety of ways, whether they were shot, whether they ate um, an animal that was shot and, and, and contracted lead poisoning, which is more common than you know, um, to birds that were raised uh, in captivity that were never taught the natural skills to be released. And we have a wide variety from bald eagles to peregrine falcons to great horned owls. And my favorite is George, the eastern screech owl, um, who will chat away at you anytime you see him. Uh, those raptors, too, are part of our educational process and part of our traveling education process. And then finally, uh, again, beyond the trails, the nature center, the raptors, the tree experience is um, our boardwalk experience. And that's a one mile ADA um, accessible boardwalk. And it runs into the forest, into the depths of the forest, giving you um, a view of the river, a view of downtown and uh, a feeling of solitude while still being fully accessible by almost all individuals. What is your role leading the organization? And could you tell us just a little bit more about what the operational side of this organization is? With everything that I discussed, we have to have a um, reasonably robust staff to tackle um, all the different uh, attributes and pieces of the facility and, and organization. And so we have a staff of around 30 to 35 people, and that includes biologists and rangers. It includes facilities individuals. It includes educators, uh, accountants, and development individuals, marketers, and then, of course, myself. And so what's my role? Well, my role is, is making sure or attempting to make sure that, that all the dots are connected and to see the big picture. Uh, really, my role and our role is to ensure that this almost 110-year organization is in existence in perpetuity, in existence forever. And so I look at it as I want to ensure that our three core tenets are something that we live and breathe every day. And that's going to be first and foremost conservation, ensuring that the acres held within the forest nonprofit are always held and held responsibly, that we are reserving them for nature and we are restoring them to their original oak savanna uh, luster. Um, second, is going to be education. So conservation is first. Education is a very, very close second because it's our job to offer the opportunity for every generation, those um, before 
me and those after me to learn and experience the forest. We want to scratch that itch of solitude, of purity of nature, um, but we want to do it while having fun, right? Uh, we don't take ourselves too serious. Um, and then third is recreation. That's that fun component. That's getting out on the trails. That's uh, having the fun. That's you know exploring Acorn Acres, which is our one acre kids play area. This isn't a playground. It's not a water or a splash pad. It's an experience to get dirt under fingernails, to dig the random hole, to walk along the logs. Um, so we look at those three pieces as what makes up the forest. And I look at my job as just ensuring that all of it continues. Henry David Thoreau, uh, who in Walden observed, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. And so I wonder from your perspective, what, why are we drawn to nature? There's peacefulness. There's a serenity that isn't obtained in other places. I shun technology in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, to step away from that and that expectation, to step away from the ding of an email, from the never-ending flow of information and forcing other senses of your own to come to life is what drives me. I'm a self-professed tree hugger, literally and figuratively. I have no problem giving a real tree a hug. Um, and in doing so, your senses come alive. And I think that's what people are drawn to, but I will be 100% candid in that it's intimidating as well. I talked about the boardwalk, an hour or a mile long decking into the forest that has railings. It's safe, secure. It pushes people and shows them exactly where to go. I'm guesstimating here, but I think it's a fair guess. 80 to 85% of the 150,000 people that come into the forest only interact with the boardwalk. I love to see people get off into the dirt because that's stepping away from more or all of the man made components and forcing our hand to experience nature, to brush the trees, to maybe, I'm sorry for those of you that it might make squirmy, to maybe get a tick on your pants that you have to flick off. But it gets you out to experience what that natural world is and wakes up the senses and forces your hand to um, make a decision of left or right on the trail, to, to, to pull out the map, to choose your own adventure, um, to go past the pond and, and determine the algae, look at the turtle head poking out, Look at the cardinals that are flying or the blue jays that are flying or the turkey vultures that are soaring. There's so much out there that is never experienced because it can be very intimidating to get out there. And so the desires there um, and what we want to do at the forest is offer the opportunity and help everybody get out there. So we are looking at new tools, new maps uh, we're going to be putting in place that helps parents or grandparents take children out and explain what they're seeing from the uh, animals to the plants that helps learn the history of our area, that helps learn the ecology so that people can go and have comfort in doing self-guided uh, hikes. In some ways, it feels a little strange to me that we would need places like Fontenelle Forest and Neil Woods when more broadly, Nebraska is very much a rural landscape with wide open vistas and landscapes. Yet here we are talking about a managed outdoor space. The forest clearly has a function. So I'm wrestling a little with the idea of needing Fontenelle Forest when we are, as it were, surrounded by land. Yeah. 
uh, we are surrounded by land. And I believe that the, the reason the forest needs to exist is to ensure that convenient experiences are prevalent. We are not managed in a way that we are going to manicure the forest. Uh, I've been at the forest for about 15, 16 months, and I don't think I've ever seen a tree taken out of the forest. Um, nature has a process. We support the process. You will see coming into the forest that we do take down trees. We do have piles of branches because we are restoring the original oak savanna. And when I say what I'm about to say, I, my biologists on our team will probably correct me. So, so bear with me a bit, but, uh, original native land in the Eastern Nebraska was Oak Savanna. And that's about 80 to a hundred trees per acre. A lot of Fontenelle forest sits around the 300 to 400 trees per acre. And that's because uh, invasive trees can grow faster and block out a lot of our native trees. So the bur oak is the tree that we are the most proud of. And I am, am, am in love with it at the forest. We have bur oak trees that are 300 plus years old. They grow slow. And so when you have a non-native tree that's growing fast, um, it requires us to cull some of those trees to empower the native species to, to grow and to attempt to restore that ground. And so uh, why do we need it? Why do we need to exist? We need to have a convenient opportunity for people to see the benefits of conservation, to have the opportunities of education and, and for recreation. We differ greatly from the rest of Nebraska. Um, I'm a Hastings College graduate. I have a lot of friends in the Sandhills, and we have some very, very unique environments in this state. Originally, the state was, you know, 90% plus prairie, and that doesn't exist anymore, especially in central Nebraska. And so the fact that we can save 1,550 acres of woodland in, in Bellevue and about 550 in North Omaha is, to me, exciting because I do see um, some perpetuity to it and that we take it off of the possibility of real estate development. My experience when I was growing up as a child straddled the rural and the urban I lived on a housing estate, but it existed in this liminal space between what was the town, the urban center, and agricultural lands, which were mainly apple orchards and hop fields. It was as easy for me to get to the fields as it was to get to the town center. From your perspective leading the forest and also as someone active in the local community, what are some of the tensions that exist or arise between the urge for urban life and amenities? and our need for natural space. Fontenelle Forest is a private nonprofit and we charge admission and we have a membership base. Um, I will say emphatically every day that we do not have closed doors. It's our job to provide access to any and every person that wants or needs to access the forest. Um, we, we work hard to develop partnerships, uh, specifically with nonprofits that offer the ability to come into the forest because uh, a great many members of our community have never been, as you'd, you'd reference agriculture example, um, a lot of people have never been into the forest. A lot of people have never uh, seen the, the dark sky at night. And um, though we don't get far enough from the city to see a truly dark sky um, up at Neil Woods, you can do some incredible stargazing. We have partnerships um, with a lot of nonprofits and we are increasing them 
regularly, whether that's uh, folks using our space for planning meetings, using our trails for training. One of my favorite uh, partnerships is with an organization here in town called Go Beyond that takes kids to a couple of different camps in Wyoming. And uh, typically kids have not been out in nature before. And so their executive director, Ian, who's just a great guy, uh, him and I teamed up and I said, you know, let's, let's work together on this. And so Go Beyond has been using our trails and facilities to get their kids acclimated to the natural world. And these are kids that have not typically experienced the natural world um, to get them acclimated prior to going to Wyoming and spending a week or two weeks on, um, you know, tent camping and cabin camping and, and doing some mountainous, mountainous treks. And so it's fun to see that kind of, of exposure. We also have a library program that's generally supported by donors, generously, sorry, supported by donors um, to offer individuals the ability to go to the library and check out passes to come to the forest. Uh, incredibly important to us. Um, we're strengthening our internship program that's offering kids uh, in high school opportunities to be an intern, a paid intern at the forest for a summer so that we can start showcasing the opportunities that forest work has as a profession. But Stuart, more and more with each passing month and certainly year, uh, you and the entire community will see the forest opening its doors wider and wider because I don't ever want an admission fee or a membership to stand in the way of somebody walking a trail. I recognize the intimidation and sometimes the unknowingness of how to navigate trails, but that's our job to help. It's interesting to me that what was in my head in asking that last question was how this pressure towards urbanization, the growth of our cities and built environments, was inhibiting our ability to encounter nature and conceptually our ability to enjoy that as humans. It occurs to me that what struck you was the sensitive issue of access. Who gets to access our natural experiences and how they get to access that? And Fontenelle Forest is doing its utmost to make access as broad as possible. So building on that, are you exploring ways to take, as it were, the forest into more urban environments? Or perhaps expand a conversation about how encounters with the natural world can be incorporated within our built environments and our urban experience? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's not a great answer because um, I talked earlier about how your senses are so heightened and how the experience itself is so valuable from a sensory perspective from being in the forest. It's virtually impossible to duplicate that correctly outside of the forest, but we will try and we do try uh, with a level of reasonability. And so we've been very fortunate to partner with an accessibility consultant and um, she is helping us look at how we make our physical space more accessible to all individuals. But what it started now for us is an internal conversation around how we can potentially bring the forest to others. And so we are exploring opportunities. As I said, we do educational programs away from the forest. We certainly, we go to schools with our raptors. Our educators go to senior centers and we do go to places that can't always come to us. But having an owl and a falcon in a gymnasium with 300 kids is very different than having those 300 kids in the forest. And so we're cognizant of that. 
but we're also looking at how we can showcase the trails. And so we're exploring, you know, using technology, even though I said I'm adverse to it. Um, we are looking at exploring using 360 degree video technology to go through our trails, you know, somewhat like the Google maps or uh, the Google, whatever it is that you can, you know, look at, uh, at everybody's house and their streets and all that so that people can experience the trails without being on the trail. Um, it's never going to be an experience like being on the trail. And I'm always going to be an advocate for that, but I recognize that not all individuals um, can be on those trails. And it's a privilege to be able to, to hike um, and to go up and down and to be able to have the, the ability and the physical body to do it. I want to talk about the impact of being in nature. Do you see positive impacts on people because they are embracing nature, because they are experiencing the natural environment? The answer to that is a resounding yes. There's a tremendous number of positive impacts that um, that I see all the time. So I, as in my role, I'm able to bounce around in the organization on a daily basis, and I can snoop in on different classes and experiences that are happening in um, visitors. And so I ask questions, and I just listen. I listen to families uh, walking the boardwalk. I listen to groups that are coming in to experience. Um, I get to see the impact and I get to see people stepping away from screens and spending time looking out, looking at distance, experiencing, watching the light. Uh, Stuart, you and I took a hike there and the morning's incredible. The way that the sun filters through the, the 50 different shades of emerald you see out there uh, is, is incredible. And those that take a moment and so often the vast majority of visitors at the forest do they experience something that's different and they get to take that with them. And it does, I think, and maybe I'm naive, I don't know, but I think it slows, it slows it down, it slows that life down where it, it's no longer these five, 10, 15 second sound bites that we have to focus on in so much of our life. It's you control what you're doing in, in your own experience. And, and I think it's, it's truly awesome. We have a program that we started last year. It's called Kinders in the Wild and Kinders after Kindergartners. And we have an awesome anonymous donor that funds it. And it brings kindergartners to the forest. And not only do we pay for them to, to you know, admission to come into the forest, not we, this individual does, um, but they also pay for a healthy lunch and transportation from the school. So, there's no accessibility issues. And so what I get to do is watch these kindergartners come in and I have a kindergartner and they're nonstop energy, nonstop questions, nonstop talking until they get out there. And then they just take a moment to stop and they look up and they look around, they go 360 degrees, they pick up a stick, they, you know, scratch at the dirt and they, it's a real experience. And, and I think there's tremendous value. And I think at a kindergartner, we try to get them to love and to respect and to experience nature early. And we're hoping to take this program wider so that we can do it to, with second or third graders as well to continue that, that love and respect. Did the pandemic create changes, not only operationally, of course, but also how the organization saw its philosophy? Did it change what you saw happening in the mindsets and behaviors of people who visited the forest or who wanted to visit? Yeah. Yeah. When the pandemic first began in March of 2020, I was not at the forest. I came about a year later in April of 21. And so 
my experience of the pandemic at the forest is learned from the staff that is of course still there that, that told me about it. Um, when the pandemic came, you know, the world shut down and people were looking for different avenues of experience and the forest, we saw our educational opportunities and our structured programs uh, virtually disappear, um, be reduced by 90 plus percent almost immediately, which was painful. But then on the flip side, we saw a membership growth of, I think in the neighborhood of 30% because people wanted and needed to get out. And, you know, I think that there is a graduate level program to discuss that one thing. And there's a white paper and there's so much research that could go into it. I feel like there was this innate response, you know, this, this just immediate response where people didn't know, but they knew that, that nature was a way that they could lessen their stress and scratch an itch that maybe they didn't know was there before. And so that's thrilling to me, you know, silver lining of, of the pandemic, uh, for Fontenot Forest was that to see more people come to the forest and more people want to experience the forest. And we've retained a lot of that membership growth because I, I believe because we've showed value and um, the forest strives to show value in a lot of ways. But I think where we really show the most value is this human and emotional development that people were able to have by just hiking and experiencing, listening, breathing, tasting. Tell me about your childhood and how your interest in the natural world emerged. I was raised in, in the Dundee neighborhood. I went to Fontenelle as a kid and Neil Woods as a kid. My wife and I, when we were dating, uh, used to go to, and we're a couple of dorks. I acknowledge that up front. Used to go uh, do some stargazing at Neil Woods. So the organization and the properties are very important and special to me for a lot of reasons. Um, but my family weren't, we weren't hikers, we weren't campers. So I did not learn that from my family. We had great respect for nature, but, um, my father in, in insurance and my mother in education, we weren't, uh, we weren't, we weren't naturalists. And so I was drawn to it in, in unique ways. And over time it became more and more important to me. And while I was at the Omaha Community Foundation and in my, my job prior to that, um, I just started taking courses that I found interesting to me, sustainability courses at UNO, um, audited because I didn't want to take any tests and I still don't, um, getting, uh, <laughs> uh, getting, uh, the, the Nebraska master naturalist designation. I started getting those experiences. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it or how to use it. And just over time, it became more and more important to me. And, um, that's where I gain so much is, is the natural world. And that's where I, I draw so much. You mentioned not being a part of a hiking and camping family. What were your outdoor experiences like when you were younger? Oh, I, I was in the dirt and mud all the time, right? I mean, I was always digging a hole in the yard and I was um, um, messing around outside, but, uh, and maybe that goes to a little bit of my version of technology today. It's a different world where uh, we were outside all the time and we came back, came home when the streetlights came on. And we had family trips where we were outside in South Dakota or upstate New York or things where we were able to experience outdoors, but that was never the central part of, of our family experiences. But now with my own family, it's becoming more and more. And just last week we were in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee with our entire family, I think 13 or 14 of us, and hiking was a part of it. And that's, it's great. And it's great to see my nieces and nephews now out there and, and my own son who spotted, uh, 
a black bear that was walking with us. Gentle, not uh, not intrusive at all, but it's fun to see that. And it's fun to see my own six-year-old start identifying trees and animals and having that passion. I like this quote from Rebecca Solnit's book, Wanderlust, A History of Walking. She says, Walking, ideally, is a state in which the mind, the body, and the world are aligned, as though they were three characters finally in conversation together. I know, as you just mentioned, that you like to hike. I'm curious about where you hike and why that's important to you. Every experience is different. Um... Where do I hike? Well, Fontenelle and Neil are, are my go-tos, of course. Where do I go out, outside of our own community? Um, wherever my feet or tires take me. Um, Indian Cave State Park is wonderful. Platte River State Park. Mahoney's good. Um, if we're going to go outside of that, then uh, I can't say enough positive about Smoky Mountains. Um, South Dakota's wonderful. If we're going to go beyond that, Stuart, you and I talked about the Cairngorms and, uh, in Scotland and how wonderful they are and what a unique experience versus what you see in the States. Um, some of the natural playgrounds, I mean, there, there's so many in our country that they're, they're boundless, they're endless, right? Our national parks, our state parks programs, they're, they're incredible. Even in uh, Nebraska where folks don't think there's hiking opportunities, um, go to game and parks. There's so much out there and across the river in Iowa, there's Hitchcock is, is wonderful. So, um, you can really spend countless hours within 50 miles of Omaha and have incredible hiking experiences. I really do push back hard when people say, well, you can't hike in Nebraska. Um, I, I call them out on that because there's tremendous experiences. Walking seems to be that low cost available to everybody opportunity to commune with the natural world, to be embodied within it, but at the same time, simultaneously, somehow to be in touch with ourselves. What is that lure, that appeal, that yearning to go hiking? Well, I think it's a spiritual component and grasping at that spiritual experience where you can relate differently to every facet of that momentary experience. Walking, right? I mean, you have so many different experiences while doing it that what you gain from it, the draw is, is that for me is that energy, right? And it's the, the exercising of the body, but also the mind, all the senses. I'm not an incredibly religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. And I draw a lot of that from nature and from being out in nature, uh, when walking and whether it's the, the thumps of your heel on the trail to the tripping of your random obstruction, to um, the partner that you're walking with. Uh, I think that there is a whole lot to be said about that isolation and that stepping away from a structural experience and into an unstructured walking experience. And uh, I have a lot of walking meetings and hiking meetings where you're forced to, somebody takes a lead, you take the lead, you encounter a spider web, you encounter other folks. It's, it's just so much more human. And I think that's what I draw from it. I like the idea that when you're walking, 
not only is it a full-bodied experience, and you talked about this when you described how you are activating all of your senses, but you are also in some ways unshielded from the world. There is no mediation. It's just you and the natural world. That can be both uh, simultaneously a little worrying, but also occasionally quite awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about Fontenelle Forest, the natural world, and how you like to experience that. However, before your role at Fontenelle Forest, you have had a pretty diverse career. And I'd almost uh, describe you as a renaissance man. You worked in the philanthropic world, and before that you were an, uh, you were an entrepreneur with Paramount Parking, a car valley service locally. I'd like to know more about that journey into business, then through philanthropy to today. Sure. Um, out of college, uh, I met with a good friend and um, business partner, eventual business partner, a man named Scott. And um, we decided that we would team up and I'd come on board and we would run this this parking business, and which ended up being into some real estate and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and I did that for about 10 years and it was incredibly fulfilling from the um, professional business growth, you know, pursuit of the, uh, the dollar. And um, I just came to a point and actually I know exactly what it was. It was when I was getting ready to get married and I was just about ready to ask my girlfriend to marry me and to get engaged. And prior to doing that, I went, you know, this is, this is not the route I want to go. And Scott and I, we were, we were good business partners and we ended up um, working a lot, a whole lot, you know, I don't know, 70, 80 hours a week. And, and we had a big staff and big team and, and we never really stopped. And I decided that wasn't the life I wanted to lead and felt like I had more to give. And um, I was doing some personal stuff through the Omaha Community Foundation. I had met with the CEO or going to be the CEO at that time, a woman named Sarah Boyd. And and I basically asked her about how a guy like me would get into the nonprofit world. And long story short, I ended up taking a position at OCF and I did that for about nine years, I think, um, and worked my way from different levels and, and ended up as the executive vice president. OCF is an incredible organization. It's so good for this community. Um, they do incredible work. Uh, the leader there now, uh, Donna Cush, is doing a great job of making sure that the organization has broad-based community impact. And that was what drew me there, was that broad-based community impact. I, I, I didn't know where I would want to serve the community in one narrow area. And so going to an organization that served all nonprofits um, equally was very attractive to me. I'm always curious about those inflection points in life. Yeah. So around 20 years ago, you began as a business person, working hard 70, 80 hours a week. And it is, uh, was clearly quite successful. Then you hit this moment and have a realization that you don't want to pursue that path any further. And you take what might be thought of as a fairly radical career shift into community philanthropy. And then again, you experience a moment when you want to continue in a leadership position, but in an opportunity much more aligned and in tune with the natural world. So uh, there are three clear inflection points there. Did you always see that your career, your life would have chapters like this? Or was it organic and unexpected that these pivots occurred? Um, So the business was started by Scott 
prior to me and I had actually worked for it when I was 16 years old, parking cars at happy hollow country club, um, which, uh, I loved doing. And I got to know a lot of great people at Omaha. Um, when I partnered up with him, we took an existing business and just grew it. And then we grew other businesses tied to it. Um, Stuart, I'm, I'm no altruistic person. I'm no, I, I'm selfish just like everybody else, uh, admittedly or not, but I just, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like it was scratching the itch that I needed scratched. And, um, I'm 41 right now. And so I was about, you know, 30 at, uh, or 21 when I took the job and, and, uh, <laughs> there wasn't much money in it and a lot of responsibility. Um, but when I was about 30, when I decided to leave 31 or so, uh, knew I was going to get married or hopefully she'd say yes. And then I was going to get married. Um, I just said, I just, I want to do more. I didn't know what it was. And, um, but I'm also a bit of a risk taker. And, um, fortunately my now wife, Lizzie said, go for it. And, and so I took a risk and, um, but if you ever meet Sarah Boyd, uh, I, I always describe her as she's a person that I'll go to battle for without even know what we're fighting for just because she's, um, she's that person that you just want to be in the trenches with. And, and I knew that right away. And so, uh, it was easy to do that. I knew that the broad-based community impact was going to be just nothing short of awesome. And, and, uh, and I, that same mindset was, is applicable to when I decided to move on from OCF and move uh, to Fontenelle. But now I had the clarity over a previous decade of really honing my love and, and some skills around the natural world. And I'm nowhere near as skilled as, as the Fontenelle team who's out in the forest every day who, or who are teaching the kids, but um, I'm happy to support them. And this is a, it was a, I, I'm honored to have been given this opportunity. I also know that you are, or at least you were a glass blower. Do you still practice that? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. Yeah. I, my degrees were in art and business. <laughs> and, so yeah, I'm not suggesting these things are intention, but they live together with you. Clearly you have a broad array of activities and passions. So are you still glass blowing? And what does that mean in terms of the importance of creativity in your life? Oh, left and right brain is essential, I think, to, to proper, proper balance. And that's, and that's just me. Um, I do still practice art on a regular basis, not only, uh, well, not at present glass because my good friend, Ted, who is finishing building his glass studio, um, which should be up and running, I would think fairly soon we'll, we will get back in the glass studio and, and the forest is having a, uh, a, a fundraiser, an event called feather our nest in October. And, um, I'm been asked to commission a piece and to produce a piece, I should say for that fundraiser. So I do have to get back in the studio to, to make a piece for the fundraiser. Um, so, uh, but other forms of art as well uh, are on uh, almost daily or regular basis for me. I, it's part of my release, right? Just the same as being, as we had talked about as being out in the forest. Um, I have to balance that. And so uh, I certainly like to have a lot of different experiences. Unfortunately, Lizzie, my wife uh, <laughs> goes with the flow on it as well, knowing that my hobbies and interests far outpace my time. Well, Okay. If we are going to continue talking about hobbies and interests, I was reminded of this before we started recording, that although aficionado may be too strong a word, you do enjoy whiskey. Oh, yes. 
Oh, I shouldn't have said it like that. No, <laughs> the listeners I don't have to, just exactly. made judgment on me. Uh, exactly. So I, without any judgment, uh, I do think that is another passion. So you mentioned the Cairngorms earlier in the context of hiking. And of course, that range is in Scotland, and Scotland is famous for its whiskey. I'm trying to tie all these diverse elements together. So what is the appreciation for whiskey, uh, which you do take to quite a high level? We might need another show. Whiskey in its entirety makes up a lot of different drinks. Uh, and I don't mean drinks as cocktails. I mean drinks as in um, liquors. Uh, so you have Canadian whiskeys. You have a variety of blends. You have bourbon. Um, and then you have my particular appreciation, which is single malt scotch. And scotch, I believe the number is it and its pieces has to be 90 or 95% produced in Scotland. So there are other single malts out there and there are some that are successful and there are some that are terrible. Uh, most of the um, delicious single malts come from Scotland. Uh, Japan also has a wonderful selection. Um, my love for it, uh, it's two parts. One, I really do love the spirit itself. I love the process of how it's made. I love the taste differentials. I love the regions of Scotland and how each region does produce something different, whether, uh, you know, I mean, the most talked about is typically the Islas, which are heavily smoke and peated and unpalatable to some. For those of you that have tried it and like it in the beginning, that means you are a Scotch drinker. So embrace it um, to Highlands, which are a little bit more docile and to Speyside, which has a little bit of saltiness. And so you can go through all of these and have some fun with, with, scotches and really enjoy it. Um, so half of why I love it is because of that. The other half is because I've been able to have such wonderful bonding experiences with friends and family. Um, this all started with uh, a friend, Monique Houston, who used to be at the Dell, who said, Hey, you gotta, if you like whiskey, you gotta go to whiskey fest in Chicago. And long story short, um, my father who passed, uh, passed away about a year and a half ago. And I, and my brother, Ben, uh, we put together whiskey tastings, scotch tastings in my dad's basement. Um, and we ended up just having a wonderful time with all sorts of guests at all sorts of spirits. And we would brown bag them. So you wouldn't have any idea what you were drinking, whether it was a Kirkland or a $500 bottle. And then afterwards we we did votes and you talked about it. And sometimes the Kirkland won and, and sometimes it didn't, but it was fun to challenge our, our minds, our, and our, our taste buds. Uh, around it. So I just think it's a, a fun exercise and experience. Is there an overarching narrative to these many experiences, your passions, these professional and personal endeavors that ties them all together? Uh, something that perhaps informs or shapes who you are? Oh, yeah. And it should be the thing that I think every single person um, focuses on, and that's just simply loving life. I love it. I'm a fortunate, privileged guy, right? I grew up in a great house with a strong family. Um, and I think I have a strong family today. Um, gosh, I, I have almost every privilege there is. And um, I acknowledge that and, and respect it, but uh, I, I love every day and I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to, um, well, Fontenelle is a perfect example. Um, I didn't want I wasn't out looking to be an executive director of a nonprofit. I know how hard it is. It's hard to raise money. It's hard to manage a large group of people. Uh, it's hard on the business side. It's, it's hard all around. Um, but Fontenelle is a place of such importance that uh, I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to be considered for that role. And then when offered, 
um, I readily jumped at it because I think it's so important to our community. And I think that about a lot of things, um, whether it's my own selfish importance that I place on scotch or art um, to, of course, the importance of family and, and being there with my my kids. Uh, as much as they may drive me crazy, I love them more than anything. <laughs> and um, spending the time with with the family and and going on those trips, I I don't know. I, I would draw it all together. That's the only thing that I think really binds it all is that I just try to love every single day. What have you learned about yourself, in particular, over this last year plus since you took this role at Fontenelle Forest? Uh, but especially as you indicated, that you have this daily interaction with opportunities available there, whether encountering nature or people experiencing nature, what has that done for you or to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's made me more humble because I've had to, and I readily acknowledge on many occasions, I say to my staff, I say, all right, this is a moment of vulnerability um, for me, because I am absolutely wrong <laughs> and I've been admitting it right away, or I have no idea of the answer and we're going to have to solve this as a team. Um, going into an organization like the forest, I, there's a lot I didn't know. Um, you know, I'm superficially knowledgeable about ecology, but ecology isn't a, it's not an audited class. It's not two audited class classes. It is a degree and another degree. It's a decade. It's two decades of experience. It's learning from the ground. It's learning from the timber. Um, it's not something you gain by position uh, or by um, getting a, a high GPA. And so I've recognized that in more than one way and entrust our land stewardship team with being stewards of the land, knowing that they're a blip on the radar of the land and that their name, my name, our names as a whole mean nothing in the life of the forest but it's our jobs to make sure that that place exists um, for everybody. Uh, beyond that, I think that I've also, I'm flabbergasted regularly that today I get to go out on the trails for two or three hours and I call it my job. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's great. I'm going to put on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and go and just go. And um, I'm spoiled. I'm absolutely spoiled to be able to walk out of my office and, and have a place like Fontenelle in, my, in the backyard of the, the office. At a time when we know that humans are creating the causes of and accelerating the catastrophe of climate change that we see impacting the natural world around us, and simultaneously humans are also behaving in ways to mitigate and remedy the impacting causes of climate change, we're in a difficult position as regards the health of the natural world and our place within it. And I wonder what that situation means for you. How is that affecting you? Yeah. Um, Mother nature is far more resilient than any human being. And she can come back from almost anything. There is a precipice. There is a point when the ability for her to rejuvenate isn't possible in certain areas. We see that uh, off the coast of Alaska, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I think 40% of it is bleached, dead, through a couple of degrees of temperature change in the ocean. Um, we're going to see more and more things like that. And humanity's 
going to have to unfortunately accept the loss of certain things. We're going to have to accept the loss of more species. Um, I don't know the science behind all of this. I know what I read and I read to a certain level. I don't know how to solve all of it. I'm no politician and hopefully never will be. Um, I'm no educator. I'm no scientist. I'm just a guy that, that helps uh, run a team that runs a forest. And I do see though effects. I regularly see effects. Um, but I also see a lot of hope, Stuart. And I would invite you or anybody that wants to, anybody that listens to this and listens to this and anybody that wants to, to come sit with me with a cup of coffee for an hour at a picnic table at Fontenelle almost any morning, um, weekday or weekend and to see the kids. And when I say kids, I don't mean, you know, the, the five to seven year old, I mean the youth of today as well. They are there. They care. They want the experience. They have the respect. They continue to learn. And, um, I'm excited about the future in a world that's, that's overwhelmed with negativity for understandable reasons for that. We see every day. I have a lot of hope and I, I get excited around seeing that hope from a lot of people coming through the forest every day and not only the forest, but I have the luxury of focusing on those that are in the forest. I appreciate having the conversation. I love if it's not obvious talking about the forest and talking about the natural world. My guest today has been Matt Darling, the Executive Director of Fontenelle Forest. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show and for sharing your love for the natural world and so much more. Well, thank you. Appreciate the time. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.